This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Hello, welcome to the final stage on the journey. This plenary session, there are two speakers. I'll introduce them each at the moment they're going to speak. The plan is we have the two uh, plenary speech talks one after the other. We then have a, a question and answer session. Um, and then finally, uh, I'll say goodbye to you. Um, so first, without further ado, let me introduce Bill Callahan. Bill is Professor of International Relations here at LSE. His most recent book is China Dreams, published in 2013, and he's working on now China and India uh, views of the future. Um, so without further ado, Bill Callahan. Okay, well, thank you, John, and I want to thank uh, John and John Hutchinson for inviting me to this. It's a nice welcome to the LSE. I only got here last September, so um, I'm, of course, very happy to be here. I also want to thank the two organizers, Ali and Joseph, for putting on a really great uh, conference. I guess we'll applaud them for a second. Um, I guess I, I find this very interesting because it's not my usual topic. I usually don't talk about nationalism anymore. Um, so this, this invitation gave me an opportunity to rethink some of the things I've been working on. Um, as John mentioned, uh, I just published a book last year, China Dreams. It's on sale at the bookstore if you want to get a copy. Um, and what, it, what happened is that actually, either through luck or or knowledge, I chose the right slogan to use because President Xi Jinping used this slogan in November 2012, just as I was finishing up the book. And um, it was very interesting because it, the China dream took off in China as a discourse. Uh, Xi Jinping, the new president of China, mentioned it, as I said, November 29, 2012. He said he invoked it as his new slogan. Uh, the China dream is for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Um, and right away, it drew comparisons with the American dream, which shouldn't be surprising, because um, American dream is a very popular discourse around the world. But also, the American dream has its own presidential pedigree. So Barack Obama um, <clears throat> is well known for talking about the American dream. Uh, dream is in the title of both of his books, Dreams from My Father, and then his campaign book, Audacity of Hope, Thoughts on Reclaiming the American Dream. And most people, when they look at these things, these national dreams, they don't take them seriously. They see that they're characteristically uh, essential, kind of positing essential national identities. Uh, they're usually dismissed as propaganda, the so-called myth of the American dream. Um, but what I found in doing research on the American dream in particular is that many of the critics of this discourse also adopt a very simplistic, essentialized view. And I have to say that many of these authors are English. English scholars often take it as their mission to discredit the American dream, to disprove the American dream, because it's wrong somehow. Um, 
and say that it's a myth, myth in the sense that it's not true or it's a poor copy of European values in one instance. But I think that trying to disprove uh, the American dream or the China dream really misses the point. Uh, a myth is not simply a falsehood, but as Aristotle told us, a myth is made up of things to wonder at. Um, so when you consider it in this way, the American dream and the China dream are not facts to be proven or disproven, uh, but they're moral dramas that express a community's aspirations and anxieties. Um, and these expressions are often quite polyvocal conversations about <clears throat> the good life, civilization, and progress in both places. And such dreams, I think, can help us see how nations themselves are an ongoing performance that both includes and excludes various groups. <clears throat> so the issues that I'll talk about today are both theoretical and empirical. Um, they're empirical in the sense that <clears throat> I think we really need to do to conduct a thick description of the China dream, particularly because it's so new. It's only come out in the past five years, uh, unofficially, and then one year officially. Um, and we also need to reconsider what the American dream means because it's been so enduring. It's been going on for a long time. Uh, but rather, again, rather than affirming these essentialists, these identities as essentialists, I'll argue that the dream <clears throat> discourse actually grows out of vigorous debates about values, about ideals. Um, and these debates highlight the tension between freedom and equality in the U.S. and between the individual and the collective in China. Um, as we'll see, such dreams erupt not merely in domestic space, but as my title said, they're going global. And they're going global as part of what some people see as a soft power struggle, a rewarmed Cold War, a battle between the American dream and the China dream. <clears throat> so analyzing these dreams is a theoretical project. <coughs> And by theory here, I'm not talking about grand theory. I'm not going to mention the kind of normal nationalist theorists. I apologize for that. I'm going to talk about just how concepts work. Um, and my argument is that dreams don't merely reflect the reality of society. Um, they're positioned as interventions to redirect debate as part of a critical practice. So rather, again, rather than empirical measurements of truth or falsity, these dreams involve political judgments and normative values. Uh, so the paper explores how the American dream grows out of the particular rhetoric of the American Jeremiah <clears throat> uh, and how the China dream grows out of the peculiar Chinese pra uh, practice of patriotic worrying. Um, you can, these are good quotes, uh, examples of what each of these means. Um, both of them kind of lead to, kind of are critical of these essentialized views of the nation. Um, I guess since I don't have much time, I'll just... Uh, keep going. <clears throat> so, well, I won't. I'll keep that up there so you can read it. So as we'll see, um, <clears throat> both the American dream and the China dream are not just positive jingoistic celebrations of the nation. Alongside the celebration, there's always a lamentation. There's always this concern about decline, about missed opportunities and lost greatness. Um, that part of belonging to these national communities involves an intense longing, often for past glory. Um, they're not just celebration of success, but a response to a crisis, a political crisis, an economic crisis, a cultural crisis, which is typically, they're typically all framed as a moral crisis. And this moral crisis provokes not just state propaganda, but also debates among public intellectuals and civil society. <clears throat> so here's my public intellectual. 
so uh, while we assume that these dreams are often conservative things, I'll argue that, of course, they are in some senses. They, they can also support uh, progressive politics. So Richard Rorty uh, famously appealed to the, to the power of dreams for progressive social change when he said that <clears throat> you have to describe the country in terms of what you passionately want it to become as well as what you know it to be now. You have to be loyal to the dream country rather than just to the one to which you wake up every morning. Unless such a loyalty exists, the idea has no chance of becoming actual. And I have lots of quotes from China that have the same sort of thing about this kind of dual notion of, of belonging or identity. Um, so according to the liberal narrative of expanding freedom, the American dream informed the civil rights struggles of the 60s and 70s that eventually led to greater rights and freedoms, especially or regardless of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Um, at the conclusion of my paper, <clears throat> we'll consider the limits of these two critical interventions. Um, rather than the Chinese and American dreams looking forward to a pluralistic future, we'll see how both the American Jeremiah and Chinese patriotic worrying um, aim to get their nations back on the straight and narrow path that leads to national perfection. To put it another way, we'll consider how critical here does not necessarily mean progressive, uh, as we'll see, values talk in both China and the United States um, is dominated by broadly conservative ideals, the family, the collective, and order. Um, the goal for most, for kind of the, the trend, the goal, the main goal, is for national perfection uh, rather than universal emancipation uh, for humanity. So right, I'll, I'll jump into my a little empirical work. Uh, that is the title of this book here. Xi Jinping. It's not his collected works, it's kind of like the little red book. It's uh, 88 pages of short paragraphs of Xi Jinping's wisdom on the China dream. It was published last um, December. I'm getting ahead of myself. So just to, to go back and remind you, uh, last uh, in November 2012, China's new leader Xi Jinping told us his China dream is for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Um, he later explained that to fulfill the China dream of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, we must achieve a rich and powerful country, the revitalization of the nation, and people's happiness. Um, though it's easy to dismiss such slogans as propaganda, um, they're crucial in organizing thought and action. And people have thought about slogans very seriously in China for a while. There's a famous communist poet named Ai Ching. He's probably more famous now for his son Ai Weiwei, the kind of artist activist that always gets in trouble in China. So Ai Ching wrote a poem to Chairman Mao uh, in 1941, and he ended the poem by saying, quote, the new slogan determines the new political direction. So that's what part this section of the paper does. It looks how this new slogan is determining a new political direction in China. And it looks at Xi's official book, that long title up there, um, as well as other, how other policymakers and opinion makers are invoking this phrase. So, I mean, on the right, this is a, a kind of a book display case at China's top bookstore in Beijing, and it says these are books that every young cadre has to have. So, it's, you know, if you're an up-and-coming Communist Party member, get those books. And all about the China dream, uh, mostly from the Central Propaganda Department of the Communist Party. <clears throat> Um, so the China dream is mostly about domestic politics. It's about Chinese national identity, but I think it's more complex than that. This is my favorite slide. Um, so the, 
It promotes an unwieldy combination of individual dreams for the good life and collective dreams for a wealthy, powerful nation, including the military dream of China overtaking the U.S. to be the next superpower. So if you look up here, so China Idol, Chinese Idol, this is a singing contest, it's on Shanghai TV. The Chinese name means uh, the voice of the China dream. Um, came out last summer. And I think if you looked at this, you'll see that each of these people is kind of posing in a different way. They're individuals, they are pursuing uh, fame and fortune in a very kind of familiar way. Um, but they're, and I think it makes a good, let's see what I'm saying, they're hamming it up to the camera very much as individuals, not even as a group of young men. Um, this down here is a <clears throat> aerial view of China's first and only aircraft carrier, and on the deck there's a bunch of kind of butch guys lined up to spell out uh, the phrase, the China dream is a strong military dream. And again, whereas the metrosexual guys are all individuals, here they're, they're not individuals, you can't see their faces, you have to, you have to actually be told that they're people. Um, and uh, it very, I think it's a good example of the collective dream of national strength, which is a very powerful invocation of the China dream. Um, these two pictures were taken at the same time last summer, and you could say uh, that this is an example of, of kind of power down here, the military and resistance up here, popular culture. That's not the case. Both of them are part of a very multifaceted propaganda campaign put out by the Central Propaganda Department in China. Um, so rather than, I think what these two examples show is how the China dream has been recruited into an ongoing conversation <clears throat> about Chinese values, about who belongs in the PRC. Uh, when, when Xi Jinping introduced the China dream concept in November 2012, um, before he gave us his version of the China dream, he actually said, you know, everyone has their own ideals and aspirations and all have their own dream. Now everyone's talking about the China dream. So he didn't kind of start the conversation, he joined the conversation about what the China dream meant. Um, and he joined... <clears throat> so the China dream, I think, is part of this broad and ongoing debate about the moral crisis that China faces. Uh, from outside, China seems very big and strong, but within China, people are very worried, they're very anxious. They see there's this crisis, a moral crisis, an economic crisis, a political crisis, that is, a, that is a result of 30 years of rapid social change and rapid uh, economic development. Um, and what has been going on is that there's been a discussion across the political spectrum in China, starting with the left-wing people, the traditional Confucian-type people, and the liberals and military intellectuals. They're all worried about uh, China's values. and. They're worried about what they see as this sort of values desert, desert in what they call a money worship society. Um, so what they, these intellectuals from across the political perspective, perspective um, keep using this phrase, <clears throat> which means uh, crisis mentality, but Gloria Davies translates it as patriotic worrying, and that's, that's the kind of interpretation that I use of it. And patriotic worrying is a very interesting way of thinking in China. It gives intellectuals the moral obligation to frame problems and solutions in terms of China's national and civilizational perfection. Um, these intellectuals feel that it's their job to, to ponder the fate of the nation <clears throat> and to find the correct formula to solve China's problems. 
Once the correct formula is discovered, then China, so the story goes, will be rejuvenated and will take its rightful place at the center of the world again. Um, but this, this sounds very uh, monovocal, but it's actually quite polyvocal because there are competing voices within China's uh, civil society that are invoking different notions of the China dream as, this, as a response to this values crisis. Um, and this is the sort of thing I was discussing in my book that came out last year, China Dreams. Um, what I'm discussing today is kind of Xi Jinping and the propaganda system's response to this very polyvocal discussion. Um, so Xi's invocation of the China Dream in 2012 was an intervention, it was his intervention into this already existing debate in civil society. Um, the new slogan <clears throat> was meant to determine China's new political direction, the way that uh, I Ching, the poet, said. It also was, was to provide the correct formula, uh, as the patriotic warriors would say, that this is the correct formula that will not only generate a sense of belonging in China, but will lead to China's perfection as a nation and as a civilization. And here C is responding to a crisis of uh, state power that runs parallel to the values crisis in civil society. It's a crisis of political legitimacy, again, in this rapidly changing uh, social situation that's a result of China's rapidly changing economy. Um, so what Xi is doing through his kind of 88-page handbook and other things is promoting the China dream as a composite ideology. <clears throat> um, it's not a, a univocal ideology. It's full of contradictions, but I don't think this is necessarily a weakness for this ideology of the China dream. Um, it, because it has contradictions, it's able to encompass both the individual dreams of the metrosexual guys on China Idol and the collective dreams of the butch guys on the aircraft carrier for national strength. Um, but I still, I guess, I have a lot of, lot of details on this, but I won't give them today. Um, at the end of that section, I conclude that the dominative narrative is actually quite illiberal that the China dream is promoting a combination of socialism and traditional civilization that is presented as uniquely Chinese. Uh, socialism here is not the kind of socialism uh, you might be familiar with. It's been nationalized as socialism with Chinese characteristics. And so therefore, it actually has changed from some sort of left-wing ideology to a right-wing ideology in the sense that it offers a familiar menu of conservative values of the state, the family, and order. Uh, so that's the Chinese view of the China dream. There's also a Chinese view of the American dream. So many of the discussions of the American dream in the PRC <clears throat> actually start with the American dream. So discussions of the China dream start with the American dream, again, which should not be surprising. Um, one scholar even stated that only great powers like China and the United States, quote, dare to have national dreams. It was funny because he's from Singapore, and Singapore has its own Singapore dream. So he was basically saying, I don't believe the Singapore dream. I want a China dream. I want a big dream. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, but the China dream is usually discussed as a challenge to the American dream. <clears throat> For example, just before Xi Jinping went to the U.S. to meet uh, Obama in June 2013, uh, the People's Daily explained the, the, quote, seven major differences between the China dream and the American dream. And they explained it in terms of China's dream of national wealth and power <clears throat> and Americans' dreams of personal freedom and happiness. 
So China here is defined as a nation that's united in its rightful pursuit of global power, while America is portrayed as a collection of individuals who are bent on their own selfish schemes. So what is very interesting is that the, from this kind of argument, which happens again and again, uh, official commentators conclude that the American dream as a whole is a failure because not every single American has been able to achieve their individual dream. And I think that the point of this China dream policy is not only to tell people what they can dream, which is a generally positive thing, but more importantly, what they cannot dream. It's a very kind of negative soft power um, movement here. That you can't dream certain individual dreams, you can't have a constitutional dream, uh, you can't have the American dream in China, according to these commentators. And it goes even further, as I kind of suggested before, to see the world politics in terms of the China dream versus the American dream. Um, that uh, China and the United States are involved in a Cold War-style contest of, of this dream battle. And you see this not just amongst the extreme right-wing commentators, but even the liberal intellectuals kind of figure things this way. Um, so what, what is happening is that Beijing aims to deploy uh, the China dream as soft power in a battle with the American dream on the world stage. Um, and again, this is a broadly conservative way of understanding uh, international politics of essentialized state-centric national values battling each other out, battling it out on the international stage. <clears throat> I guess I have to call it the uh, kind of American view of the American dream, to distinguish it from the Chinese view. And um, there are there's a lot of celebration, of course, of the American dream. Uh, but there's also a lot of kind of joking or uneasiness, especially among intellectuals, that in the audacity of hope, uh, Obama writes that when he was a senator, his staff often kidded him about how he used a formula uh, to talk to new immigrants, that all the speeches to these uh, groups would start with section one, I am your friend. Section two is X country has been a cradle of civilization. And the last section is you embody the American dream. Um, but generally, among American intellectuals, the dream is discussed um, as a problem to be solved, in a very similar way to China. Um, even the subtitle of Obama's second book is, you know, speaks to this, Thoughts on Reclaiming the American Dream. Um, so while <clears throat> on the face of it, the American dream seems quite simple, it's always often defined as crass materialism, uh, fame and fortune, China idol, American idol, that kind of thing. Uh, when you look at it, uh, in more detail, it's actually quite complex. And uh, one person wrote a, a recent book-length treatment of the American dream, and he gave six interrelated archetypes, uh, religious freedom, political freedom, upward mobility, equality, home ownership, and lastly, fame and fortune. Um, but I think it's actually more interesting to sort of trace the origins of the American dream and though most people trace its origins back to the pilgrims and kind of religious freedom, um, the first citation for it as a guiding theme is quite recent. It's 1931. Uh, James Truslow Adams, related to the famous Adams family of Massachusetts, um, coined the phrase in his popular history, the epic of America. And it's quite interesting that this 83-year-old description is still quite similar. He says the American dream, that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer for every man, 
with opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement. <coughs> so when you, when you look at these sources, you see the, the national dream also grows out of a crisis situation. So 1931 is not a time of prosperity. It's the depths of the Great Depression. Um, like with the China dream, this American dream from its very beginning is a mixture of aspirations and anxieties. Um, it celebrates success, but at the same time it's haunted by a sense of dissatisfaction, a belief that the nation we inhabit <clears throat> isn't quite right, but could be and should be. Um, hence, um, there's always, it's always a discussion of values. Uh, like James Adams asked, you know, what is better, what is richer, and he answered it by saying, no, it's not just buying a motor car, it's about a social situation where everybody can achieve their full potential. Um, so in such discussions of political, economic, and cultural values, there always is a tension between individual freedom and <clears throat> collective equality. Uh, rather than simply celebrating the American dream as a success, Adams' book shows that from the very beginning it's about reclaiming the American dream. The same thing Obama talked about 80 years later, 75 years later. Um, so while it's also interesting when you, when you line up the American dream alongside the China dream, uh, you can see that while the China dream is to achieve the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, uh, the American dream <clears throat> is closely tied to achieving a great democracy. And you see that in, in quotes from Lincoln in particular. Um, so while Chinese uh, intellectuals deal with the, there's kind of this anxiety by, uh, through uh, patriotic worrying, um, I'm arguing that Americans do it through Jeremiads. Uh, the Jeremiads are these bitter political sermons from people such as John Winthrop in the 17th century and then Newt Gingrich in the 21st century. Um, and they, these Jeremiads criticize the moral corruption of society and lament the nation's imminent decline. The American Jeremiad was recently described, even in, in the New York Times, an op-ed a couple years ago, said, we Americans, the Jeremiah proclaims, have failed to live up to our founding principles, betrayed our sacred covenant as history's chosen nation, and must rededicate ourselves to our ideals, reclaim our founding principle. Um, so this again, like in China, it's a heavily moral tale. A heavily moral tale that looks to the past for solutions to problems in the present and in the future. Um, the Jeremiah fuses the sacred and the secular, and this is actually a favorite uh, vehicle or technique of the Christian right in the U.S., as I guess most of us know. They like to trace the decline of America <clears throat> to the crisis of family values in the 1960s, and they argue that to reclaim the American dream, the country needs to return to these sort of Protestant values, evangelical values, and this idealized version of social and family life from the 1950s. Now, although Obama aimed to be post-partisan and try to rise above uh, this cultural wars way of seeing things, he's also well known for his inspiring rhetoric that lays out America's problems and provides a pathway to reclaim the American dream. Um, and this is an example of what uh, one scholar, Andrew Murphy, calls pro a progressive Jeremiah rather than a traditional right-wing Jeremiah. He says there's also this kind of progressive Jeremiah um, that, that looks to a more open and diverse society. Um, much like Rorty in his dream country, Obama argues that to understand the future, we have to 
view America as it is and as well as how we want it to be. We have to have this split-screen view. Um, and I think that's quite interesting. Um, okay, so American Dream as a global experience. Oh, I'll just stay there. Um, how much time do I have? Okay, cool. Uh, I can slow down. Okay. Um, so the American dream, as I've mentioned two or three times already, has always been part of a global discourse. Uh, even in Adams's book, it's very clearly a real. I'll smile for the camera. <laughs> Otherwise, you just get my forehead. Um, so even in Adam's book, uh, it's very, the American dream is very clearly a uh, reaction to what were called old world values of kind of European class society. Uh, the, the United States here is figured as the world's first new nation, a new utopia, a new Jerusalem. So in John Winthrop's sermon in uh, 1630, he's, he, which is called A Model of Christian Charity, um, so, you know, it's not just something that was done <clears throat> hundreds of years ago. This, this is an archetypical identity speech that was invoked both by JFK, John F. Kennedy, and Ronald Reagan, and it preached that America is a, a city on a hill that would be judged not just by God, but perhaps more importantly by the world, because, quote, the eyes of all people are upon us, unquote. There are many other examples of this notion of a chosen nation and of a covenant that go right up to the present. Um, so I guess my point is that the American dream is not just for Americans, it's always on this global stage. And this leads us to uh, American exceptionalism. And I, I, was, I found it very interesting that <clears throat> American dream and American exceptionalism are usually treated as two quite different things, but they often, if you read the text side by side, they reference often the same people, the same text, the same events. So I think that they really are um, kind of interrelated in, in a very interesting way. Uh, so exceptionalism <clears throat> says that the nation is not just unique and it's not just superior, but it's uniquely superior. And that it's the best nation in the world and the chosen nation. Um, so the US here is presented as a uniquely moral nation with a mission to fight for, the, for freedom around the world. And whether these people want their, like it this or not is really kind of secondary sometimes. Um, and this course flowered uh, during the Cold War, but it actually <clears throat> preceded the Cold War and has continued after the Cold War, this, this notion of this righteous nation <clears throat> I think most of us are familiar with. Um, last June, when Xi Jinping was meeting with Obama in California, uh, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio actually used this Cold War-style figuration to talk about U.S.-China relations and he talked about them in terms of the American dream versus the China dream. Um, and he did it in a typical Jeremiah style. <clears throat> he said, Rubio tells America that it's lost its way under Obama and needs to, quote, return to the right course, get our economy in order, and resume the global leadership required to ensure that the rise of China occurs peacefully, unquote. Then he goes on to say, if America does these things, uh, he assures us, uh, it will ensure that, quote, the American dream continues to be what every what people everywhere aspire to for decades to come, unquote. 
Uh, so that's, again, a traditional Jeremiah that kind of weaves in American dream and China dream. Obama actually tried to talk about American exceptionalism in a new way. And this was in response, actually, to a question by an English reporter from the FT in, uh, I think, 2010. Yeah, so uh, what the reporter asked, what do you think of American exceptionalism? And Obama answered, <clears throat> quote, I believe in American exceptionalism, just as I suspect that Brits believe in British exceptionalism and Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism, unquote. <clears throat> so he thought he was kind of dealing with this and didn't think it was that serious. But it actually really pissed off the Republicans even more and kind of geared the campaign, as far, I can, as, far as I can see, for a certain thing, and even made uh, Newt Gingrich write a whole book celebrating American exceptionalism. So it's quite funny that you try to intervene, and sometimes it goes in different directions. Okay, so, so we've talked about the American dream as a world dream. Let's talk about China, the China dream as a world dream. So many common Chinese commentators take aim at the American dream to argue not just that it's different from the American dream, but it's the opposite. And they go further to moralize it to say that the China dream is good and the American dream is evil. And they use the word evil sometimes. Um, after criticizing the American dream, many commentators often talk about how China's national rejuvenation is part of the world dream. And as the former ambassador to the UK, Ma Changgang, said, China's dream is the world's dream. And President Xi Jinping said similar things to foreign audiences, especially in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. This world dream is an extension of Chinese exceptionalism. So China has its own kind of brand of exceptionalism. Um, it's a discourse that's reemerged in the past decade. Um, but it's not completely new. Uh, traditionally, <clears throat> kind of pre-modern China, uh, in pre-modern China, Chinese identity was defined according to cultural vectors, specifically civilization versus barbarism. So China is civilization, everyone else is barbaric. Um, and Chinese civilization here is seen in the past and then now again for the past 10 years is seen as uniquely superior to everything else. Um, the idea of exceptionalism reemerged uh, in post-socialist China as part of this values crisis that I talked about before. So while American exceptionalism, exceptionalism grows out of the idea that the U.S. is the first new nation, Chinese exceptionalism looks to what they see as 5,000 years of uniquely continuous civilization. And they see China as the world's first ancient civilization. So America is the first new nation, China is the first ancient civilization. Uh, while American exceptionalists see the United States as a beacon of freedom and democracy, Chinese exceptionalism, exceptionalists see their country as a peaceful and harmonious alternative to uh, what they see as American hegemony. Um, now, although lots of historians have provided a nuanced analysis of China's imperial history and shown that it's quite turbulent and violent, um, many Chinese intellectuals still take for granted the argument, this, the exceptionalist argument, that Chinese civilization is inherently peaceful. And you see this all over the place in official statements as well as scholarly statements. Um, Public intellectuals in China are developing this idea of the world dream and, and being inherently peaceful um, to propose a post-Western version of the China dream and the world dream. And this post-Western version of world order has China lead the rise of the global south against the west. So new left economist Huang Gang, uh, 
this guy, who's very, I mean, he's a very important guy. He's one of the people who writes the five-year plans in China. He's one of the top public intellectuals in China. He comments on everything. Um, so he's, he's important as an influential voice. And over the past <clears throat> couple years, he's weighed in on the China dream and the world dream. And he said, he predicts, for example, a great reversal of world order where the global south replaces the west. In addition to promoting this kind of vaguely socialist internationalist um, ideology, uh, Huang Gang likes to promote China's traditional values. For him, uh, the world dream of the 21st century is for great peace, is of great peace for all under heaven, Taiping Tianxia, and the world of great harmony. Now these are very common utopian slogans in China that are thousands of years old and have lots of different meanings. Um, but they're also highly political because when they're used in this way, and he's not the only one to use them, um, they're sketching out a world order that is both hierarchical and sinocentric. Other public, uh, public intellectuals are more clear. Um, they say that, they say Western empire is evil, which is fine, but then they, they don't say that empire is evil, they just say Western empire is evil, and they go on to say that Chinese empire is benevolent, and that the Chinese empire, the tributary state system, for example, should serve as a model for global governance in the 21st century. <clears throat> this combination of socialist internationalism and Confucian ideals may sound far-fetched, but it actually fits in with how Xi Jinping recently described China's new uh, peripheral diplomacy policies, peripheral diplomacies for Asia, especially Southeast Asia. <clears throat> His new policy that he announced a few months ago it's interesting because it mixes economic cooperation with joint military exercises, so hard power and soft power. Um, it also stresses that Beijing seeks to socialize regional countries by developing shared beliefs and shared norms. And these shared beliefs and shared norms are kind of a one-way sharing um, because the shared norms are meant to support China's dream, the China dream, the common destiny of this Sinocentric regional order. Here, China sees its, sees its rejuvenation as a moral mission to improve the world by spreading its ideas, aspirations, and norms <clears throat> starting in Southeast Asia. Simply put, for China to achieve its world dream, it has to go through its Asian dream. I guess I'll conclude this section by saying that um, the battle over values in the PRC, uh, there's a lot of voices, but the, the battle, the trend, is being won by those who are promoting an exceptionalist view of China, uh, that, uh, of a China that deserves to lead Asia, the global south, and, and then the world. Okay, here's my conclusion, um, talking about the limits of China dreams, or li limits of national dreams. <laughs> Not yet. So I've been arguing, I'll sum up first, I've been arguing that we need to take the China dream and the American dream seriously, not simply as reflections of national values, but as critical interventions into normative debates in each country. While it's common to dismiss the American dream as crass materialism, I've shown that it's always been concerned with social values, specifically of freedom and equality. Uh, likewise, I've suggested that the China dream is much more than a propaganda campaign that promotes a singular vision of the PRC as a strong state. It also includes many individual and collective dreams that look to spiritual and materialist values um, alongside and beyond the state. 
To argue that these two national dreams can be critical interventions, I've used the concept of patriotic worrying in China <clears throat> and the American Jeremiah for the US. These, com these concepts highlight how national dreams emerge in times of crisis and involve a combination of celebration and lamentation and of aspirations and anxieties. Uh, while both concepts describe how public intellectuals can and do join national debates, it's important to note that, that both of these concepts have actually, the main purpose of them is to criticize the way these debates work um, the criti and criticize how things like the American dream and the China dream um, actually are limiting the possibility of critical discourse. So uh, Sakban Berkovich is famous for describing the American Jeremiah as a curious process of dissent that actually produces assent, produces uh, coherence and cohesion. He criticizes this for limiting American public discourse to issues of reclaiming past national values rather than generating new universal utopia. The end result for him of, of this harsh, the end result of this kind of harsh critique of American Jeremiah's is not some brand new society, but for him it's the growth and spread of capitalism, which he calls American capitalism. Um, so even progressive appeals for greater freedom and equality, like uh, King's I Have a Dream speech, um, have been criticized because they still are within this system, the circular system that uh, Martin Luther King um, seemed to have to reference the Declaration of Independence in order to gain political legitimacy for his cause. Uh, so the American dream for Berkovich has domesticated dissent um, and produced an intellectual terrain that lacks diversity. At times, actually, Berkovich gets into the Jeremiah style. One of his sentences says, this is from 2012, the United States has developed into a country with less diversity than any other nation in the West, and perhaps the world. He really has no evidence for this, but you get so it's kind of he gets sucked into it himself, even as he's criticizing it. Um, so here, the liberal logic of inclusiveness forecloses radical possibilities. The American Jeremiah thus is a process of containment, where the future is limited by the past in the quest for perfection. Um, Gloria Davies is even more critical of contemporary critical discourse. In China, in her book on patriotic worrying, um, patriotic worrying here gives intellectuals the moral obligation to frame problems and solutions in terms of China's national and civilizational perfection. Um, although different thinkers take different approaches, they all are united in the deeply normative project of perfecting China. And if worrying intellectuals can find the correct theory and method, for understanding the world's logic of development, <clears throat> then all of China's will be solved once and for all. Uh, this, this critical inquiry in China is both normative and positivistic at the same time. It has what she calls a linguistic certitude, unquote, that the truth is out there. Uh, it's the moral obligation of intellectuals to discover this truth with a capital T, save China from its imperfections, and thus reestablish China as the moral center of the world. Um, theoretically, this is interesting and problematic um, because a lot of these Chinese intellectuals who are doing patriotic worrying are called postists, post-colonial, post-modern, post-structural, but they're actually not using this posty uh, way of thinking of things at all. Um, they're actually very positivistic, looking at one singular truth, one method. It's, it's incredibly positivistic. 
Um, so that's what's, I guess, her main contribution is to, is to kind of point that out and show how they're, they're really promoting meta-narratives rather than being suspicious of them. Uh, Davies also points out that patriotic worrying sharp focus on China as the problem means that intellectuals rarely frame their consideration in terms of wider issues of humanity, um, that even the world dream, as, as I described it, is just the China dream writ, writ large. So like the American Jeremiah, patriotic worrying serves to reaffirm national ideals rather than offer transnational critique. I'm almost done. Do I have another minute? Okay. Um, so after all this critique, the, the, the discussion has gone on, and so for some political theorists, the American dream still has some mileage. It's, not, it's still an unfinished project, and Andrew, Andrew Murphy does this, and as I mentioned before, he talks about this notion of progressive uh, Jeremiah as opposed to a traditional Jeremiah. The traditional Jeremiah he, he describes as this model, it's a checklist of things that you have to do that's all based on old values. And he says that, sure, that describes what the Tea Party is doing, for example, right now. But he also says there's another strand of the American Jeremiah that employs a more capacious use of the past to offer a more open and pluralistic understanding of America and its future. And he suggests that we shift from seeing the American Jeremiah as a model into seeing it as a source of promise, promise of ideas that are more open-ended. Um, so he has confidence, he still has confidence in the emancipatory potential of American ideals. Um, I guess I'll just jump to the end. Empirically, I think that I've shown that the China dream and the American dream are still an underexploited resource for analysis about the complexity of national identity. They both have more mileage as critical interventions into debates about identities and ideals in both national and global space. Um, theoretically, the American Jeremiah and patriotic worrying tell us much about the limits of national dreams, but I think that they themselves are quite limiting. Um, this critical, this critique of critical discourse needs a further critique, perhaps. Um, and because they often reproduce the same nativist discourse that they seek to critique. Um, so I think that my project has to go one more step, and rather than looking at uh, the American dream through the American Jeremiah, I think I should try to look, to use patriotic worrying to look at the American dream, use these sort of Chinese concepts to look at uh, American practices, and at the same time use American Jeremiah to look at the China dream. And this way is kind of part of this in a way, a post-colonial, um, anti-Eurocentric way of thinking of things that is becoming more popular as kind of a, a more truly comparative political theory. I'll stop there. The Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism is an interdisciplinary student-led research association founded by research students and academics in 1990 at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We seek to fulfill two broad objectives, to facilitate and maintain an interdisciplinary global network of researchers, academics and other scholars interested in ethnicity and nationalism, and to stimulate, produce and diffuse world-class research on ethnicity and nationalism. We do this through our global membership 
our two leading journals, Nations and Nationalism and Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism, our newsletter, The Ruritanian, which provides key updates on information in the field, and through our programme of events. Our YouTube channel features videos from our annual conferences, seminar series, lectures and debates. You can find us online at lse.ac.uk forward slash ASIN, on Twitter at ASIN Events, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ASIN Events.